from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yarashevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, President and CEO. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. We are joined today by Mario Lopez, Executive Director of the Billings Symphony in Montana. Prior to his appointment, he served in education and community engagement roles with both the Knoxville Symphony and the Sarasota Orchestra. Originally a French horn player, he studied at the University of Cincinnati's College Conservatory of Music, then worked in the for-profit corporate world before returning to classical music on the administrative side. Mario Lopez, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I think people through this conversation will figure out how much the two of us have in common uh, because we both are people who have performance degrees, who ended up going into administration, who started in education and community engagement, and now are executive directors. So I'm very pumped for this conversation. But can you just tell a little bit of your backstory and how who you are, where you come from, and about how you got involved in music? Sure. So I was born in Venezuela. So my family's Venezuelan. And we moved to Florida when I was five years old and uh, grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida. So I consider West Palm Beach my stomping grounds. That's what I consider home. And uh, being there when I started the seventh grade, actually, I decided to choose music as an elective. And when I saw the French horn, I was mesmerized by the shape, by the sound. And I didn't want to play flute or clarinet because those were too many keys and it was way too hard and complicated. So the French horn only had three keys. <laughs> and um, here we go. That was my overachiever side, of course. And I chose the French horn and um, fell in love with it and knew right then and there that this is something that I wanted to do for a living, uh, performance, playing the French horn. And that's exactly how my music career started. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's so you, you say there's too many buttons on those and then you pick the French horn, maybe like the hard, one of the hardest instruments. Correct. To play. Correct. And it's so funny cause I, I'm a woodwind player myself as is Rachel and I've was attracted more to woodwinds because I'm like, oh, just like the piano. I played the piano from when I was a child. And it's like, okay, the keys of the piano and the keys of the woodwind and you just blow. And you don't have to worry about changing what your lips are doing. And that to me was like way scarier (laughs) than all the keys. Yeah. The young minds are really uh, something fascinating. So, But also a French horn is a circle. It has a cool bell. It looks real fun. Yeah. So you spent some time in my hometown of Cincinnati as a student of CCM. Yes. How was that? It was amazing. Um, Like I said, grew up in West Palm Beach. Um, Music was near and dear to my heart. Went to the Alexander W. Dreyfus School of the Arts in West Palm Beach. And that really catapulted me into this is what I want to do. Um, I got my bachelor's at Lane University 
at the conservatory there in Boca Raton, Florida. And then I went to CCM for my master's studies. And it was probably the most two intense years of my life. Um, it was just so intense, uh, so focused. The studio was so focused. My horn professor at the time, Randy Gardner, um, amazing, prolific, and just a really, a, a real treat, honestly. I'm super honored to say that I attended CCM and I loved it. I loved Cincinnati. Um, and while at Cincinnati, just a recital away from getting my master's degree, I actually went through a lip injury. And that kind of ended my uh, performance career. I didn't know it at the time, but I took a couple months off. Um, I started getting my playing back up. I attended CCM Spoleto th that following summer. So I was doing some playing. I was doing a lot of low horn playing and I was, it was just not fun anymore. I was always in pain. I lost stamina. I lost endurance. I lost range. And it was really, really difficult. And I realized that at that point, this is something that I cannot pursue any longer. And that was a huge shifting point in my life. And so CCM has amazing uh, memories and Cincinnati holds probably some of my darkest memories uh, growing up as well. Yeah, that's Absolutely. so, I mean, so for those people who aren't brass players, people who don't mm -hmm. understand the brass world, can you explain why a lip injury would be so detrimental to a brass player? Absolutely. Um, it, this topic is very taboo. And speaking of orchestrating change, we should normalize how we talk about some of these injuries. Uh, it's very, very, it, they're very common, but it's very hard as a musician to say I have an injury because you move on to the next person. You need somebody to play these notes. You need somebody to play the gig. And you're kind of like, great, there's other people out there. And so people are very afraid to talk about these to potentially lose their shine or their spot. Um, but I tore my muscle just right above my lip. Mm. And uh, what happens is you, you can't continue to form or maintain an embouchure correctly. And so... Uh, I actually tore my muscle, but it felt more like a needle prick. Um, there's lots of stories of people tearing muscles and you it's an audible sound. Oh. Um, I, I dig it. Mine wasn't as drastic. Mine actually healed on its own. But there's a lot of people that actually get surgery. And there's tons of people that have gone through surgery that are playing professionally and are playing really, really well. Wow. So you can come back from an injury. Um read lots of books, uh, went to go see Anthony McGrail um, up in, yeah. at the time in Toronto, Canada, yeah. who was known to be a, a a lip doctor for brass players. And I mean, did the whole nine. And so there's tons of books out there. There's tons of resources on how to uh, rehabilitate your embouchure. And I did, there was actually quite a few things in my playing that were actually better uh, post-injury. My tone was better. My low range was better. Um, there were things that were better because I was so much more focused on being intentional mm. and and just uh, having great a great setup. Yeah. And so at that point, some things were actually like, oh, I actually sound better than uh, before my injury. And then other things, you know, rear its ugly head, like no range or just stamina or pain. Mm. And so um, as taboo as it is, I think people need to talk about it more. And there is some lag at the end of the tunnel for sure for a lot of our musicians and some just have to move on. That, that's so interesting. I, I think about, so I, I know several people who, uh, string players 
who have hurt had shoulder injuries uh, because of the way that they were taught to, like the way that they held, the way you hold violin is not a natural position. And so there's a lot of research right now going on into into how musicians treat their bodies while they're playing. Mm-hmm. And I, it's kind of like sports medicine, like sports injuries. Like, you know, it's playing a sport is dangerous. And if you do not play correctly and work out your body correctly, you will get hurt. Or there's, I mean, football, there people are running into each other. Someone's going to get hurt. But with music, it's the same way. If you don't, if you overplay, if you, uh, if you, uh, you know, hurt, like for bassoon, I have, um, I got, I started to almost feel like I was getting carpal tunnel or something in my mm-hmm. left hand because the bassoon weight all goes onto the left arm, basically. So I have two seat straps. I have one that goes over the seat traditionally, and then oh. I have one that h- hooks into the back of a chair and then hooks into the back of the bassoon. And so I can like let go and the bassoon's just kind of floating in front of me, oh. which is very helpful if I feel myself getting tired at all. Um, but that, yeah, no, that happened my senior year of, of, of my bachelor. And I was like, Oh, I was like, I had to like grab my bassoon and like, sh- like it would, it was bad. Like there was se- several concerts. I was like, I don't know if I can keep playing. My arm hurt so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people don't understand that musicians are very much like athletes, although mm-hmm. I might not look like an athlete, um, <laughs> but you know, I tell people go to the gym and pick up a dumbbell and just start doing and just start curling and curl and curl for eight hours straight. And then come back tomorrow and do it again for eight hours. And then come back the next day and do it for eight hours. Eventually your muscles going to tear. But there's not that much focus on that because, as you know, as music performance, there are just so many things that are vital and important in those two years, four years, whatever degree you're doing. And you can't possibly cover all of these things that are so important. But it really is uh, very similar to being an athlete and warming up and warming down and taking care of your muscles and and making sure you're stretching correctly and that you're that you're doing endurance and stamina and you can't just be playing all the time you know and so that's what happened to me i was playing about eight hours a day and um i that that's that's what happened to me and you think that it doesn't happen to you and it's never going to happen to you and then it happens so uh a word of caution no one's exempt from getting injured but uh being smart about this is truly the way to go about it wow yeah yeah so after the injury the horn was in the past and you spent some time in the corporate world. I what, did. What were you doing in the corporate? <laughs> this is a, a total 180 yeah. for someone who got a music degree and was pursuing a master's in music performance. What, what was that like? What type of roles did you have? Absolutely. So I, as you can imagine, I was very bitter. Um, you know, I could have played horn all my life and maybe never made it. And we've been happy about it because there was there was always that what if, but the fact that I felt like it was taken away from me because I wanted to continue playing and it I couldn't, um, it got me to be very bitter. And um, I exnayed all classical music from my life and didn't want to hear about the horn and didn't want to hear about anything because it really was a, a sore, a really big sore actually. It was really frustrating, and so I said. I need to go make money and I need to start a new career. So I started working at a bank. I worked at Citibank for a few years um, and started sort of, this is what I want. Um, worked at a law firm uh, that did probate, uh, a private law firm in Palm Beach. So did that for about a year and started realizing that I was kind of like dying inside. <laughs> this I was trying to pursue other things. Uh, and still very bitter about listening to music. And so I ended up landing a job with 
the with the Jewish Community Center in Palm Beach, and I got a job in an arts and culture department. That was my first taste of the non-for-profit world. So going into that world, I realized that, you know, I learned a lot about Jewish culture and I learned that we were supplying, you know, life in a way. We're supplying arts and cultures to the Jewish community and realizing how big of an impact this made to the Jewish community. Um, I'm like, okay, well, arts and culture. Okay. I, I see it. I was really enjoying what I was doing. And then my boss at the time said, you know, I know you really like music still, and I could totally see you running an orchestra one day. And that comment literally ignited something in me. And I was like, duh, of course. Yes, absolutely. What was I ever thinking about leaving music? You know, music is still very well in me. And, you know, that was really a, a pivotal moment in my life where I was like, okay, this is it. So immediately I went, I, this was about, you know, three, almost three years in. And immediately I went online and started applying for as many orchestral jobs that I could find that kind of fit my personality. And um, I was closed for a couple of them and no, you know, nothing happened. And that was frustrating. And then eventually I landed the job as the education manager with Sarasota Orchestra. And that was actually my first orchestral job. Um, and it was such a fresh, like a, a breath of fresh air, walking in there, listening to the musicians rehearse. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I was talking about. And so, of course, education, because through education, I was able to travel travel all over the U.S. I mean, I went to, I attended Tanglewood Institute, I did Eastern Music Festival, I did the American Wind Symphony, I did CCM Spoleto in Italy. And there's all these things that I got to do through the horn and through education. Um, I was able to go to college for free because of the horn. And so I think education and just having that influence my life in such a big way, um, I think it's so important for our youth. And so education was definitely the way to go. And living back curiously through these young people playing their instruments and trying out for Allstate and their first concert and their first solos and things like that. That was really fascinating. And so being in Sarasota in that realm really was sort of the beginning of it all. And just understanding that, yes, this is my passion. Now I don't play, but I actually now get to live vicariously through the musicians, but I get to play a, a separate role that's equally as major, if not more important in some cases, to be able to drive and continue to grow this culture of orchestral playing. So it sounds like Youth Symphony was at least some component of your time in Sarasota if you were watching kids try out for Allstate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, while in Sarasota, I you know, was heavily involved in the day-to-day -day tasks and running the youth orchestra program there. They have a, a wonderful youth orchestra program there um, with eight different ensembles. And they have a wind ensemble, they have two full orchestras, and then they have, uh, I think, five string orchestras. Amazing directors, amazing faculty there. It was just wonderful being there and being able to be part of something larger. So, you know, as you all know, it, well, maybe not as a conductor, but as administration, as you know, it's all behind the scenes. And so you go, the spotlight's never on you, but when you see uh, these concerts, the YPC or the youth orchestra concerts come to fruition, it really just gives you a good feeling. You're like, this is, this is what I'm meant to be doing. I'm meant to be, you know, 
orchestrating a lot of these things, no pun intended, <laughs> orchestrating this from the back end and really making a difference in these young kids' lives and, and just in people in general that are um, impacted by the symphony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, when I, you know, when I first started here in Canton, I was our manager of education and community engagement. And so the person on staff I work the most with is actually, I went, I was Matthew. It was Matthew and I, because as associate conductor, he does all of our educational content and he's the music director for our youth symphony program. So Matthew oh, and I oh. were, you know, the, one of the first things I did was auditions for youth symphony and uh, writing the script for YPC and picking the books for, you know, and all of this fun stuff. And it, is so um it's funny because when I was thinking about going when I decided I wanted to work for an orchestra um because I was getting a degree in performance as well as arts administration and I I thought maybe I would work in the theater world or because I'd worked for a lot of different institutions and I decided orchestra but I did not just apply for education community engagement stuff I was applying for um, artistic operations. I was, you know, I was playing for a lot of different areas within the orchestra. Um, and this is the one I ended up getting. And now it's really hard to imagine, um, <laughs> not having done it. I feel like the edge people who are working in education and orchestra know everything else that's going on. Cause you know, you the grants, it. you know, the grant schedule, you know, you know, the market, like, you know, everything. So, you know, looking back now and then, and then you, we're in Sarasota and then we went to Knoxville. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious what in your experience now kind of overseeing someone who is doing, you know, as the executive director now, why is the education and community engagement personnel and that part of an orchestra just so integral to what happens here and, and how an organization can function? Absolutely. I mean, the youth programs and the education programs are equally as important and some people beg to differ and you know it's one of those I, you know i'm into memes a lot so it's like one of those memes where like do you want you want this right and it's a picture of an orchestra then you need to have this and it's a picture of a youth orchestra yeah. <laughs> and it's very true you know it's you know it, it the future of the orchestral world the orchestral world is is dependent upon uh, these music educators and music administrators uh, to continue to cultivate this art form that in some cases is dying, in other cases is thriving, just depending on where you live in the nation uh, or the world. But it is something that's so important and that as we all know as music educators or backgrounds of music education, how it really helps you develop as a whole person, um, not just as a musician. And so it is very important because that is sort of the department that really gives that new sense of okay there's the orchestra of tomorrow and we need to we need to focus we need to invest and we need to give them space and so um there are i have a lot of colleagues and in some places you know they feel like they're undermining and other places they feel like they're given their spot and i know it's a it's a, it's it can be a topic of contention at this point, but really the the education youth orchestra, not only because you're cultivating the musicians of tomorrow, but also like I did in Knoxville Symphony, like you did in Ken, I was also director of education and community partnerships. So that added a whole nother realm of now we're going out into the community and we want people to come to our symphony concerts, but they don't know who we are. How do they get to know who we are? Community partnerships and going out there and showing who we are and showing that 
of course, we play these amazing concerts, but we also enrich lives and we impact lives and we uh, are heal lives and we heal souls. I mean, it sounds corny sometimes, but it's so true. Music is so powerful. And to go out there and to present programs for pre-K, for kindergarten or for elementary, middle, high school, for the elderly, for the sick, you know, then people get to have a sense of, oh, not only do I know what music is, but I know what the symphony really does. And it just really begins to branch out and to get people to come to the symphony, which is the, the ultimate goal at the end of the day. But all of the symphonies are mission-driven and education is a huge part of, or should be a huge part of every symphony's mission. And from my perspective, I, I use this particular phrase a lot that the educational programming, be it youth symphony or YPC, anything like that. I don't want these, the people who come to our programming, who participate to become musicians themselves. I would rather them all become educated consumers of classical music. I'd rather them be the subscribers of 20 years from now. Because as much as we need musicians on stage, we need butts in the seats. (laughs) So to me, you know, if a youth symphony kid in 15 years is like, oh my gosh, they're playing the Firebird at my local orchestra. I played that in youth symphony. I'm going to bring my spouse. I'm going to bring our kids. I might even invite my friends like that to me is a huge victory Mm -hmm. and it creates culture in a community and I think that's something that I'm trying to instill here in in Canton we're all trying to do here in Canton I can't in Ohio I'd love to learn more about Billings and we'll get to that later but every city has a personality every Mm -hmm. city has its quirks and the things that are unique about it Um, and Canton Ohio is the home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame Right. So we are literally looking at You can look at Hall of Fame Stadium (laughs) from where we're sitting right now. I could walk to it in 30 seconds. We're in the middle of it. And and not football is a a great thing in American culture. It brings people together. A lot of people love it. Football is a part of American culture. And I think here in Canton, we're trying to elevate the symphony, not because it's not already great. It already is great, but elevate it in the minds of our community that we are just as integral to the community as the Pro Football Hall of Fame, as as anything else that, that when that Cantonians can take pride in the fact that they have an orchestra, even if they don't love classical music, they're like, but we've got this cool orchestra, you know? So I think that it, it it's, it's, it's a lot of different things coming together. Absolutely. And how you mentioned earlier, I mean, that's the other flip of that's the other side of the coin, which is, yes, musicians of tomorrow. But as we know, music makes you whole. And um, depending on who you are as a music educator, when you talk behind closed doors, you're like, yeah, we don't want you to play this instrument in your life because it's it's just like it's so competitive. But we want you to be appreciative because, yeah. Oh, you want to go to law school? That's your option B. Well, let's just make that your option A. Why don't you go to law school? And uh, you're right. Those are the funders of tomorrow. Those are the mm-hmm. board members of tomorrow. Those are the sponsors of tomorrow as well. Mm-hmm. And so making those connections is uh, very important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's it's really hard to hear how people don't understand the value of education sometimes. And to have to, I'm like, why am I having to explain this? I don't, I, I don't understand. But I think, I think that for so long, like the, the math equation of how an orchestra worked just happened. There was a math equation of how 
uh, if you got to a certain age and you had a certain amount of wealth, you attended the symphony and you gave to the symphony in your will. And the kids that were trained in orchestra were the kids who were trained in orchestra because they came from wealthy families and they had music in their background. And there was a formula that just happened. And that doesn't happen anymore. That's not how orchestras, at least in America, operate anymore. And and we've got to break out of that for me and be like, nope, it's new. It's new. And we got to think about things differently. And so, especially yeah. in smaller cities like Canton yeah. or I don't know much about Billings at all, but <laughs> Billings being a smaller market as well, I'm, I'm sure it's similar. I mean, I think in the large cities, you still have enough institutional wealth <laughs> to keep the orchestras going. But in the smaller cities, it's it's not the same as it used yeah. to be. Yeah. And you have a lot of competition, so. Yeah. For yeah. people's time and, and attention. And money. And money. There's Absolutely. like four people all giving to everything. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but so now you are executive director. Like wait, I am. Oh, really yeah, wait, quickly. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. What was the timeline? How many years oh, yeah, did yeah. you spend in Sarasota and how many in Knoxville? Sure. My light's going off here. There you go. <laughs> I have censored lights and if I don't move enough, they go off. My um, office is the same, same way. Same in the yeah. air. I'll just so, suddenly it's dark and I'm like, what? <laughs> so I was in Sarasota Orchestra for almost three years. Maybe it was, it was closer. It was between two and a half and three years that I was in Sarasota. Mm-hmm. Got to learn a lot there. And from there, I got the position of director of education and community partnerships with the Knoxville Symphony. And I was there for a year. And that has a lot of that has a lot of, of backstory. Um, I will say this. I was very happy in Knoxville and a year was a disservice. Um, I felt like I needed to be there longer, but there were some personal reasons why I left uh, Knoxville and uh, it was very clear to them. I mean, I I loved it there. Mm -hmm. They have probably one of the most robust educational programs that I've seen. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have a young people's concert, a very young people's concert. This is a plug for KSO for anybody out there. (laughs) Young people's concert, very young people's concerts. They have a youth orchestra. There's now a youth choir. Um, there's musical story time, there is uh, classroom quartets, classroom quintets, there are master classes, there are side by sides. I mean, the list goes on and it works there. There is a huge market out there for that. And for the size of Knoxville, which is much larger than Billings, um, they get tons of support. And so they're doing very well. And it's it, I feel really proud to have been part of that program just because of the size of the program and mm-hmm. um it's a it's a it's a truly wonderful place great staff and a great orchestra i matthew i'm really glad you asked that question because i actually didn't know your timeline for things that's insane we have almost the exact same timeline when it comes to everything we're oh, living wait, weird lives yeah, here wait, so so did you start in sarasota in like in 2019 yes oh my gosh <laughs> so i started again in june 2019 and when did you that's... start in billings January 3rd. No way. Are yeah, you serious? Yeah. yeah. This January crazy? 3rd. This, yeah. So, so now you're executive director of Billings. <laughs> it's crazy. Our lives are parallel. It's so cool. Wow. You jumped in <laughs> mid season too. Yeah. That's remarkable. If you're going to do it, you got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> just no, jump no. in. So just jump in. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that move of, of moving to executive director? And you know, it's only been three months, but a lot happens in three months and you learn a lot in three months. So can you Absolutely. talk a little bit about this change that you've made? 
Absolutely. I will say on a personal note, I was way more nervous to move to Knoxville and be the director than I was to be the executive director. And I thought that was really interesting because um, going from a manager to a director for me was just a a huge feat in my life. And it was, I was really proud of that accomplishment and to be chosen for that role. And it's kind of like a little organization within an organization because of all of the moving parts. And you, like you said, you're, you're in education. Also, you know, the sponsors, you know, the conductors, <laughs> you know, the timelines of marketing, you know, where the website needs to be. I mean, you literally are in everybody's hands and in everybody's docket. And so that was, I mean, what I learned in Knoxville by Get being given that position is priceless. I mean, I grew exponentially, uh, it, uh, personally, but professionally. And uh, Rachel Ford, who's the current executive director there, learned much from her. And um, she she runs a great ship. She runs a tight ship. And it really, uh, it was really, really great. It really was a great opportunity. And so going from there to getting this position, I felt like I was a lot more prepared in a way and there were things that, of course, you know, now I'm working directly with the board, which I didn't do in Knoxville. As an example, there were things like I'm like, OK, there are a lot of new things, but I felt like I was just more prepared for it. And that's just on a personal note. But being here in Billings, executive director started on January 3rd, hit the ground running. I mean, no one can ever prepare you for what's to come. Every day is something completely different. Things just pop in your email. People just walk in your office and you're there. You are on all the time. And it's it's a great privilege. I feel super honored to have been chosen. And I feel honored to, to have been given the opportunity and just to move to Billings. Um, moving to Billings was interesting. It was a three-day hike. I have my wife with me. I have my two and a half year old dog with me. And I have my seven month old with me moving all the way from Knoxville, Tennessee to Billings, Montana. So that was very interesting. Got stuck in a snowstorm, got stuck in Jamestown, North Dakota for two days. Uh, It was just all the things driving in negative 45 degree weather. But anyways, made it here alive and well and uh, really adjusting to the weather here. But uh, just some facts that people may not know, Billings is actually the largest, uh, or is the the area with the largest concentration of people within almost a four state radius. No and way. If that means anything to anybody, Billings also has the population of about 117,000. So we're not that big. But we are huge compared to a lot of our surrounding areas. Um, So we are the biggest city in Montana. Mm -hmm. And we have a huge medical hub here, Billings Clinic. Um, But Billings is super, is is thriving with with arts. You know, there's the Alberta Bear Theater. You have us. You have the Art House. um, And on top of that, you have other, um, or you have the Yellowstone Art Museum, which is called the YAM here. And you have the the there's a theater house and there's a lot of historic uh, places as well, but then there's also a lot of other non for profits and so for a community this small, um, we have tons to offer, and so that's where it gets a little bit tight when with the competition you know everybody does fundraisers, everybody does galas, everybody does this, and so that's where it gets a little bit um, a, a little tight, but at the same time. 
we are fortunate to have people that want the arts and cultures, that want the theaters, that want, you know, the local theaters and the local films and the independent films. And so it really um, is a great place to be um, with with culture. Mm -hmm. I It's so interesting that you say you were less nervous to go from Knoxville to Billings. And, you know, my jump, because I went from being a manager to president and CEO. And so I was like, I am scared. And because it was the first time I had to be the director of other humans. I mean, I had mm-hmm. interns and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd overseen people, but going from being a manager to a director role is very nerve wracking. And yes. uh, there's nothing to prepare you for it other than get ready. I feel like a lot of my day is just as just a bunch of people asking me questions and, and it's just me answering questions. Um, and you know, the first week I thought everyone's going to ask me questions. How will I know the answers? And now, you know, now that it's been six months for me, I'm, you know, I, I feel much more comfortable with it, but I do agree that it's, it's go so, so scary to do that first jump off mm-hmm. of going from being manager to being director. It is a very interesting and, and for someone who was relatively new in their career mm-hmm. when it came to orchestras. Um, yeah. Says you had been doing this for almost four years. Our timelines are so insanely similar. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 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 Um, so along with being executive director and, and for those listening, Mario and I had had a, have had conversations about this before. And, and one thing that we talked about was, um, the dynamic between administration and musician, mm-hmm. which is a really, um, it's a really interesting and nuanced topic um, that has become a very hot button issue for a lot of orchestras in America, for union orchestras in particular. Um, and it, it, it can cause and has caused in the past a lot of animosity between mm-hmm. musicians and administration. And I think, I, you know, we really strive here in Canton to have a really good relationship. And um, I think as someone who is a musician myself, I understand why a union is important. And I understand that if we're going to be a good orchestra that people want to come see, we have to have the best musicians. And to have the best musicians, we need to treat those musicians with the utmost care and respect. And it's super important that we do that. Um, and so I wanted to kind of throw the floor to you and, and to maybe give your perspective on this relationship that we see in orchestras. And I know that in Billings, you're not a union, but you do no. have discussions with the musicians, um, mm-hmm. kind of in a, in a union-esque type of way. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts on, on this topic and, and, and why it's such a hot button issue. Sure. I think we have to start with the fact that, you know, um, Starting with the fact that, yes, just like in any industry, there are industries that are not, there are organizations that are not run as well, and there are organizations that are doing well and organizations that are not doing well. And, and that's a fact. Yeah. Um, is there bad management out there by default? Of course. But are there organizations with great management? Of course. Are there organizations with musicians that have amazing attitudes and are not jaded? Absolutely. Are there organizations that have jaded musicians? Absolutely. So it is a, it's a very, it's a balanced theme in my opinion. And there are, it's two, it takes two. And so it is really hard when you have an amazing group of musicians that are 
wanting to do it that are there and you have bad administration. It's just, it's really unfortunate and vice versa. It's really unfortunate when you have an amazing staff and amazing administration and the musicians feel like everything the administration does is against them and they don't care about the musicians and they want to pay them as least as possible and they want to exploit their talent and, and have them play you know, hours and hours at a time, which as we know, it's not possible because there is a union. So that's why there's a union. They are protected. And even some orchestras that have unionized, you know, musicians, you know, they're still like, oh, it's, it's, oh, we have to do this and we have to do that. And it's like, well, it's all within the rubric that you agreed upon. Mm -hmm. So that's where the balance is. And so ideally you'd have a great orchestra with great mindset and a great administration that really work together. And that's not happening. You know, the union started because musicians were being fired because they cracked a note, because they were late, yeah. because of this and that. And so that started to protect the musician. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that has evolved to now just being a salary negotiation and we want to get paid more. And, you know, it's sad. Now, this is not all orchestras. And I can say from the press, you know, that, somewhere like Cincinnati Symphony seems to have a really good relationship with their administration. Mm -hmm. And they really have a good, you know, it's, it's a great example to see that they have a good relationship that the musicians trust the administration and you don't get there overnight. You know, you, you have to see trust to be able to get trust and earn trust. You know, you can't just trust somebody. Um, now as somebody who's new to this organization, that's the role I'm playing. You know, they have to see what I do the next few months for them to say, oh, you want the best for us or you don't want the best for us. Yeah. Um, now being in Billings, we, our orchestra is not unionized. Um, we do have union stage hands, but not on the orchestra. And we have an orchestra committee, the orchestra committee, um, currently, there's five members. Two of the members are actually part of our board, and they are voting members of our board, this is really um, cool. which I think is great. Really cool. But the orchestra committee really runs as its own unit. They, they have their orchestra meetings. They have their orchestra committee meetings. They vote. They, you know, so it really runs. Um, there are steps, and it, it's, um, I, don't, I hate to, wear, to use the word bureaucratic, but it is very organized. And so when it comes down to negotiations, it really is the orchestra chair and myself in one room. And um, we have done, it's right here on my left, the orchestra agreement for the next two years is completed. We're signing today. Wow. And um, I think that uh, when you have a committee or a union that is in line with the administration and you both understand what's best because I want what's best for the orchestra. Without an orchestra, administration does nothing. To that extent, without administration, the orchestra cannot thrive. And so we're all important, you know? This is where we're at and we have to learn how to work together and how to earn trust from each other because there have been orchestras that have been jaded because of the distrust, because they see administration say one thing and do one thing. Mm -hmm. I don't blame them. But at the end of the day, you know, there are places where they are trying to build up. And when you don't give the administration the chance and vice versa, when you don't give the musicians the chance to change, it really uh, causes a lot of friction. And no one needs that. We need to be a, a, a we need to be a unit and we need to understand that everybody wants what's best for everybody. 
And sometimes that means you get a larger raise and sometimes it means you don't get a larger raise, but it's not because of that. It's because, and this is just me speaking from my heart. I'm not speaking for anybody or any orchestra, but that's kind of what I've seen and what I've uh, shared with a lot of colleagues. And it's, it becomes a little, a hot, you know, a hot button to, to talk about. It's a little bit contentious, but it is a fact. And these things have to be talked about so that the air is clear and we know where people are coming from. And at the end of the day, we want great musicians, we want great staff, and we want to be able to create greatness for our communities. And that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm amazed that only three months in, you've already had to do a negotiation with your <laughs> <Me> musicians. <laughs> Rachel is well, going to, is about to start experiencing of, again, that. The amount of similarities. We're, you know, union negotiations with, with, with the Kansas Symphony. You, you've luckily been on the job for a bit before a you bit, had yeah, to yeah. really I've, dive I've in. I've a little bit more experience. But Mario sure. has like, was right like, away, here we go. <laughs> I showed up and they're like, oh, by the way, we're negotiating. And, oh, you have to create a budget for next season. Oh, and I mean, it's just like all like hitting the ground running, honestly. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, wow. But I you really, I think it's, it's the mindset I'm coming in with. And it's already the culture that yeah. the orchestra has been able to build. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no perfect orchestra. There is no perfect administration. Yeah. We know that too. Yeah. But it really is. Hey, let's be realistic about this. You know, let's be realistic about races. Let's be realistic about changing terminology. Let's be realistic about uniforms. Let's be realistic about um, services per week. And and uh, do we repeat? Do we uh, compensation for travel? You know, uh, Montana's very unique because it's a huge state. Yeah. But a lot of the musicians play in multiple orchestras in Montana, and so we have to have a great. A reimbursement package and we have to have a compensation package that's going to be attractive yeah. to, to create the billing symphony and so we've been able to do that and we're continuing to do that um but you know what works here doesn't work in canton and vice versa and i think you really have to just learn this culture and what happens here and how it works you know we are not a full-time orchestra um, a third of our musicians are local a third are statewide that drive in and a third are flown in wow. and so yes so wow. I know. So like our tuba player, for instance, he currently resides in Chicago. Our tuba player's uh, in Alabama. See, what is, what's it does tuba, not surprise tuba players me. There's only are... one tuba player in every <laughs> orchestra. It. So if you win a job, you've won the lottery. <laughs> like wherever the job is, you're going to go take Shout it. out to Tom Lukowitz. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a fact. And so we treat all of our players the same, you know, we have tenure musicians that don't live in Montana, but the way that we have a structure is, you know, you, you still, you know, you've been here for this long and you, you get tenure and, and, and it, just like any other orchestra, but it is a little bit different, but what we've been able to accomplish in Billings with this system um, is pretty remarkable if you think about it. And, um, you know, because it's a part-time orchestra, people can't move here to play with the orchestra yeah. because it's a per-service part-time orchestra. Yeah. And so unless they have other gigs, you know, or whatnot, you can't just move here to play with the Billing Symphony. Right. And so that's a huge challenge that we have. Um, but at the same time, we have, we're pretty surprised and are always super grateful of the talent that we've been able to bring to Billings and to the state of Montana um, through our process. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Crazy. So Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was was a little bit curious, uh, what is it like so far working with your music director, who I believe is a female conductor? Yes. How has uh, that been so far for you? Anne Harrigan is a music director of the Billing Symphony, and she has been here 
like 18 years, I think. Oh my 16 gosh. Years. He's been here for a while, 15 years. So I apologize. That sounds like uh, Reno but, a gee. bit. Reno's had, uh, uh, had their music director for a long, mm-hmm. long time too. Yeah. And um, it's been wonderful to get to know her. What she's done in the in her tenure here has been pretty remarkable, you know, and it's to say with any music director that comes in and really grows the orchestra. I mean, the orchestra, what the orchestra has done at least in the past five years has been pretty incredible. You know, we uh, at, in 2019 and before, we used to only have seven subscription concerts, six per- subscription concerts. And then on top of that, we had like Nutcracker family concert and like our Symphony in the Park concert and things like that. Uh, but now we have eight subscription concerts. We have a Sukin series, which is like a chamber music series. We have about seven of those. We have a free family concert, which we have five additional concerts to that. We have three special events and, you know, and we have Symphony in the Park. And so the growth has been amazing. Um, The fact that we are able to, the fact that Billings has the Billings Symphony is pretty remarkable. a, A place this size to have this caliber of orchestra doing this many concerts that's that's a huge feat. I mean, that that's a huge accomplishment for this organization. And so, coming into that, um, I felt pretty pretty lucky to be a part of this. It is a you know we are a tier six orchestra, um, but we do a lot of concerts and we do we do. Last season, we did over 120 um, outreach educational and outreach performances free. Yeah, and so it's pretty amazing what we're able to accomplish, and. Um, Yes, it's it, it's just like craziness, but this is uh, we're continuing to hopefully in the next few years, continuing to grow, continuing to add concerts. And um, we are doing all of this by the generosity of our of our community. It, it feels like Billings is our sister symphony or something. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, I, I feel because I, I the fact that Canton has the Canton Symphony is crazy. Yeah. This is a freaking good orchestra. These musicians are insanely talented. This the caliber yeah. of music that comes out of this orchestra is wild. It's so good. And the wow. amount of stuff we do, like right. it feel it's I don't but know. How- <laughs> we have an advantage though, because yeah. Cleveland's an hour away. I actually yeah, live yeah, in yeah. Cleveland. And Pittsburgh is two hours away and Columbus is two hours away. Do you get a lot of their musicians? So well, I mean our oh, yeah. our most of the orchestra drives in from Cleveland or Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, yeah. That's yeah. the majority of the orchestra. And then we get a few outliers we that come a little farther field. Like yeah. our bass trombone lives Cincinnati. in Cincinnati. Our uh, tuba our, players in Alabama. Tuba players in Alabama, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, we, we have the added, unlike Billings, where it's the biggest population center in a four-state radius. It is bigger than Canton, but not too much bigger than yeah. Canton. Sure. Whereas here... We have these two major cities with good music schools in them that feed our orchestras. Yeah. Their their graduates feed our orchestras yeah. essentially. Yeah, and, and then it's we're the smallest population center in our region when it comes okay. to city size, right? So it's Cleveland, Akron, us, and all three of them have orchestras. So yeah. it's it's this it's it's really interesting how how much parallel there is with Billings but how different those two it's so interesting because looking on your website just so much cool stuff happening in Billings Mm -hmm. oh my gosh just so much cool stuff it's also a testament to Canton because 
you it really is a testament to how saturated some of these areas are and there is room there is room for orchestras there there are plenty of musicians that would like to playing jobs and would like to play so the fact that you're in that little trifecta area um really makes it more attainable for canton you know and uh, you know we don't have a huge you know we have um MSUB, which is Montana State University Billings, but this is not the flagship campus, you know. And so you have Bozeman that has a flagship campus. You have um, the there's Montana State University, and then there's a University of Montana. Um, and so we don't have those flagship campuses here. And so I come from Knoxville, where you have UT. Um, speaking of football, they bleed orange, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the balls, but, uh, but not only that, it's, uh, they have UT and they have this feeder, you know, and they, and so being in a place like Canton, where you have these prolific orchestras, yeah. obviously that have, and prolific schools and around those orchestras that you're able to, Hey, you're not that far. Um, you know, it's, you, it's, a, it's a huge, it's a huge advantage for Canton. And yeah. so that's wonderful that you guys are able to, to have that type of caliber of orchestra um, where you are at. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, at the executive director level, I, we were just on a peer call with group five and six orchestras and thinking about strategic plans, looking to the future of the League of American Orchestras and what are orchestras going to be? What do you think executive directors need to be kind of having at the front of their minds as we're kind of leading orchestras into the next five, 10, 15 years? So that, that is a loaded question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because it's like, what don't we do? What, what isn't in our front, uh, forefront? What, what aren't we aware of? What, what aren't we doing? Yeah. And so I think uh, on a personal note, in this position as executive director, um, one thing that I get that I didn't get you know, as a director or as a manager, is that you are now spearheading a whole organization, not just a department. And so with that, with great power comes great responsibilities, right? <laughs> and so with that, I know that my goal is, uh, on one hand, is being financially stable, yeah. you know, finances, finances, yeah. money, 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 budget, budget, yeah. budget. And that that is a huge part of our job. Um, but on the other hand is uh, with the passion and knowledge that I have, incorporating that into continuing the growth of the organization. Yeah. So what does that mean? That just means more educational exposure, of course, yes, educational yes, yes. for me. And so, you know, what can we do to continue to go to these schools and impact these kids? They just need one experience. Kids need one experience, one great experience where someone comes in and plays something amazing and they're like, that's amazing. I want to be a part of that. What do I do? That's all they need is one experience. And so I think continuing our our community outreach, continuing our education, but also getting the privilege to work with our music director and putting our heads together and say, okay, well, we want to continue to grow our audience. We want to continue to be eclectic. Well, what can we bring in? And having a voice of power, not ultimate power, but a voice of power that I can steer the ship and say, we need more of these performances 
Yes, we need to continue to do Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, smaller. I mean, that's what we do, of course. But there's a new generation emerging, and we need to have these uh, more eclectic concerts, these more pops concerts, these more cover bands. You know, everything has its place. But that's one thing that I love about being a leader of an orchestra is that I can now influence that change in saying, we are an orchestra for everyone. You know, our mission statement is enriching lives through music. That's our mission statement. And so... What lives? All lives. <laughs> Old, young, you know, marginalized, uh, rural, you know, everything. And we have a, and, and Billings is a very different beast in itself because our communities that we are outreaching are, are actually Indian, our reservations, our Native American reservations. And so it's just a different part of the world here. And so how do we go out to those reservations and and do and we are we already have programs in place to go to the Crow reservation and to go to the Cheyenne reservation and you know introducing these string instruments and wind instruments and getting them excited about potentially joining the youth orchestra or just having music in your life. It's just having that. And so that's one of the things I love about my job is talking to people, talking to our donors, letting them know why they're giving and why they should continue to give and what their impact, you know, what, what, what they've done. And that's probably my most, my favorite part is community engagement, education, and talking to our donors and saying, this is what you've done. And this is the difference you've made. And this is where we want to go. And would you continue, please continue, please continue and tell your friends, bring your friends over. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. So the impetus for this podcast, when we started it in uh, 2020, yeah. we were inspired to start the to start having these conversations mm -hmm. by the death of George Floyd mm -hmm. and looking at classical music, our own organization, and the industry at large, and realizing that it is not a it was not a particularly diverse space and how we started to have conversations with people about what we all can do as an industry to move the ball forward on this and become a place, a space that is more welcoming to every member of our community. And I was wondering what, what is, are there conversations being had on this type of line uh, in Billings? And have you brought something to the table that that maybe they weren't thinking about before you got there. Sure. So they were very excited. Um, me coming from, you know, me having been part of the Sarasota Orchestra in the Knoxville Symphony, which Sarasota was a tier two, Knoxville was a tier three. So coming from a larger organization, you know, what are they doing and, and what's going on there? And our, our other colleagues and other orchestras, well, what are they doing? And so we do have a DEI committee um, here at the Billing Symphony. And um, I am really you know our, our committee chair is spearheading this but i'm equally involved with the committee chair because it is something that i believe in i believe in that we are an orchestra for everyone you know we are an orchestra we are a place that anybody who's anybody can come and enjoy and be transformed or have an amazing experience you know have a humanistic experience have an exceptional experience, have a once in a lifetime experience. I mean, that's what we believe. We believe that music is power and music is for everyone. Music is a human right and everybody should have access to it. And so some of the things that we're doing at the Billing Symphony is, you know, we have our lights, lights, there we go. Um, <laughs> we have our 
we have student ticket pricing and we have under 30 ticket pricing, oh, okay. um, which is heavily discounted. And so if you're under 30, you can get a full season subscription for like half the price as if you were over 30. Wow. And we have, and so for our youth orchestra, as an example, if you're part of our youth orchestra, you get to come to all of our dress rehearsals for free, you know, because that's a whole different experience. And so um, we do have different programs that, you know, it makes it equitable and makes it diverse and makes it inclusive. And so when people think about DEI, the original thought is marginalized communities, underserved population. And rather, I mean, that is part of DEI, but that's that's just like, you're just like hitting the tip of the iceberg. You know, DEI is much more than just race and social, you know, economics and 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 the, it is, it is that, but it's also you know, what are your ticket prices? Can everybody come? You know, um, that's part of it. It is, who are you inviting to be on your stage? It is, who are you inviting to teach your kids? It is, uh, what uh, regions are you going out there to influence? I mean, it is just, the great thing about DEI is that there's nothing that's not DEI, <laughs> in my opinion. And, but everything is part of DEI. And so we, um one thing that we are doing in our committee is we've looked at the past five years of our of our concerts and you know what genre of music was played at those concerts can, how can we diversify that mm. um what composers have we played and then you realize oh i mean there's maybe three female composers in the past five years that needs to be changed yeah. it's um, better than what we were doing for a while that's a, three and right? five years would have been great for us at one point Right. Or it's like, oh, who are your guest artists? Yeah. You know, and I have them down by nationality. And it's like you can see that there's an overwhelming amount of Americans, as an example, or people that are, you know, born in the U.S. And then you have your sprinkles of, oh, look, there was a Venezuelan person and a Cuban person and a Puerto Rican person. So what this led us to do is to say, hey, you know, we're not we're not doing badly, but there are places where we can improve. Yeah. And that's the first step. I say DEI is not a destination. It is a journey yeah. and it never stops because no matter how diverse you are, you can always do more. Yeah. And it's plain and simple. No matter how excellent your organization is, you can always be better. Yeah. And so DEI is much uh, definitely a journey. And that's how we're taking it into consideration. And we have a committee that's like an oversight committee that is really saying, let's get all these data. You know, where are you going? What schools are you going to? How many of those are Tiger One? How many of those are mm. rural? And do we need to continue to expand? You know, are you only going to rural schools? Well, no, you also need to go to Tiger Ones. Are you only going to Tiger Ones? No, you also need to go to the nicer schools or the better wall. You need to go to all schools. Yeah. And it's everything. And so that really has given us sort of a drive to say, we have all this information. We are seeing some spots here. And then the staff takes that to the artistic committee, to the staff meetings, to the board and say, hey, we have a committee. This is what they found. Now that we're planning for the 24-25 season, let's fill some of these gaps. And that's where you start. I mean, if you go from no diversity to having one female composer, you're doing a great job. I don't think that, you know, people are caught up into doing these huge things. And if you can go ahead, but some of us don't have the budget, you know, yeah. you don't have to do a black composer because it's MLK. Is it bad? Absolutely not. Is it better than nothing? 
Absolutely. If you're going to do it, do it. I'm okay. Do it. Fine. Great. But why not have a black composer and a regular yep. uh, series? Yep, concert? Yep, yep. And so those are the things. Is it bad that you're only doing this, you know, in, uh, in the month of June because of Juneteenth? No. Yeah. But why, you know, why do your Chinese composer for Chinese New Year's? Why do, why not do a Chinese composer in January? You know, I don't know. Yeah. These are just some topics. And it, it really, it's just, it's an ongoing process. It is how can we be more diverse? How can we be more inclusive? How can we be more equitable? And those are just the conversations. Oh, we need to tweak that. Let's do it. Yeah. Then the next time, oh, we need to tweak that. Let's do that. And I think that little by little, people are going to start noticing and people have noticed our Sukin series is super eclectic yeah, and that's cool. we have Baroque music and we have Celtic and Irish music and yes. we have jazz, we have a jazz band and we, and we have a pianist and we have a string quartet that play, we're going to have a cello quartet next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, I mean, it's like even eclectic mixes of instruments, yeah. you know? And so that's sort of where we're at in Billings and um, we're doing it one day at a time. I like it. I like it so much. Just out of curiosity, what is the demographic of Billings? Um, it's mostly white. <laughs> it is mostly white. I don't have those numbers off the top of my head, but if I had to guess, I mean, it's a huge percentage. Uh, it's mostly, you know, I would say 60, 70%. Then you have, um, I would say about 20% Native American. Okay. I mean, there's definitely, we have, reserv- there are five major reservations gotcha within our area so you do have the native american population you do have the white population or the you know and then you have a small percent of like everything and so one thing that people don't know about billings even though there's not a huge population of the um of other races um for lack of better terms i went to the mayor's language or the is the mayor's language dinner and I went there. It was like my first month here. When I tell you that there were 320 people from over 40 nations. I mean, we have people that live in Billings that are Korean, that are um, Polynesian, that are Croatian, Venezuelan, a bunch of Latin American. Um, and it was really interesting because where are you all the time? We want to see more <laughs> of everybody. Yeah. And it's a testament to say, hey, there's a lot more things that we can do to reach these populations and the different types of demographic right. that really make um, living in Billings just that much greater. Yeah, I think it's also because every community is different. So mm-hmm. being inclusive of your community is going to be different based on where you are and where you're from. And, and, and you know, I think that's so interesting of, uh, of a deep Native American population of we've recently dove in to try to learn more about Native American composers because we've had mm. several educational, we did like one of our educational concerts was the history of America. And so we try, so we found a Native American composer um, and now we loved his piece so that we put it on a Masterworks concert. <laughs> so it went from being on a YPC to being on a Masterworks. And, and so every every DEI for an orchestra is going to look different because every community is different. And I think that's really important to port, important to point out. Um, is that, you know, not every population looks the same. Not every community looks the same. So it's not a one size fits all model um, Absolutely. of how this works. So, yeah. And the, the marginalized population in some states are very different than yeah. in other states. I mean, and yeah, so, West Virginia, 
it's it's all about rural. It's 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 a different ball game in West Virginia uh, than it is Appalachian. in Yeah, it's 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 that population uh compared to, you know, we talked with Anwar Nazir in Louisiana and New Orleans. Like that's different. It's different. It's different stuff happening. So, yeah, that's so interesting. I'd love to visit Billings. It sounds like a really cool a really cool town. You have a home. You have a home in Billings. Yay. <laughs> no. There you go. But no, it's interesting. I mean, even Montana, Montana is so huge and our orchestras, we don't, they're all smaller, but you know, Montana has seven symphonies. Uh, wow. It, it, I knew seven. Bozeman did. I, cause I know the executive director of Bozeman, but I didn't know seven. Wow. Seven. There are seven symphonies in Montana and um, for such a large state, um, you know, like I said, we, some of us share musicians just because of, yeah. you know, the nature of, of the, of the the musician pool that we have available to us and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy that there are seven symphonies in, in there. And then there's Maso, which is the Montana association of symphony orchestras. It's kind of like our own little, it's very like um, league of American orchestras, but like statewide. That's fun. <laughs> California has one as well. Okay. Yeah, so California Maso, does. Yeah. 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 And then Maso, you know, they do yearly events. Uh, they get, they try to get all the executive directors together, uh, the music directors together, brainstorm. You know, there's a huge, uh, every other year, there's a, a young artist concerto competition and they get to be featured with different orchestras in the state. And so there are some initiatives that really try to keep us, um, you know, informed of what everybody is doing and how we can work together. And I think that's pretty cool. Wow. So I guess one of your roles as executive director is something that I know Rachel has to deal with, which is making sure that you and the other orchestras in the state in the state aren't doing all of your masterworks concerts on the same weekends. <laughs> oh, well, scheduling. It, it's hard. So I will tell you that the way that the region, you know, where we are regionally, we're like very, you know, uh, southeast, and so, you know having a same having the concert on the same weekend as Bozeman could be um rough because Bozeman's only two hours away but like if Glacier Symphony was having the same night yeah we're not going to get some of those musicians I mean we're like a complete opposite sides of it. it's like eight hours oh and so yeah. there are some yeah I know there are some uh orchestras that it, it, it doesn't it doesn't have as much friction as when orchestras like Helena, Missoula, Bozeman, Butte, I mean, they're all like closer together. Mm. So if they all have the same evening, yeah. that can be a bit of a, of a challenge for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we have so, so, so enjoyed yeah. talking to you today and Good. really appreciate your time. I feel like I have a twin. Yeah. Well, now we know we live married lives. We there need, we go. We obviously, need to continue to be in touch. Oh and, yeah. Oh my um, gosh. I I love building networks, and I love continuing to have a second, third, fourth opinion because at the end of the day, you know, we all share um, the same uh, growing pains. Yeah. And so I love it when orchestra, you know, executive directors and CEOs call one another and say, "Hey." I'm having this issue. Have you had this issue? What did you do? Yeah. You know, and you, you kind of feel like you're on your own a lot of the times and you are, you know, and you could live in a silo and you can do whatever you want, but we're much, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than building symphony. It's like, it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. 
And so why not reach out to your fellow colleagues? And so it's, it's been super fun getting to know Rachel and continuing to, to know what, you know, she's doing and what Kat and Symphony is doing. Um, but also looking forward to in the future going to League of American Orchestra uh, seminars yeah. and, and workshops because that's where you really get to network and and really get to be in a room with people that feel your pain <laughs> and understand all the ups and downs yeah. because it's not all pain. I mean, I do have fun every now and then and, and it should be that way. There, it's, it's, it's ebb and flows, yeah. but um, it's a great honor. And, you know, only so many people get to say, you know, get to have this position. And so I think that the the networking component is super important because you need to have, sometimes you need a shoulder to lean on yeah. 100%. Yeah. Definitely. So before we let you go, we're going to ask you the question we ask of every one of our podcast guests at oh. the end of the episode. Okay. How do we orchestrate change? Oh, the million dollar question. Um, definitely one day at a time, I think. I mean, I really think that change is something that happens internally, individually. And then once it's internalized and it's thought through, it's vocalized. And once it's vocalized, that's where you begin the resistance. And in some cases, the resistance starts even before you vocalize anything. It's within you. Well, I can't say that. Well, I can't propose this. This is crazy. This is crazy talk. They've never done this before. Ever. There's no way they're going to do this. And so it, there's obviously a battle before it even leaves your mouth. Mm -hmm. But once it leaves your mouth, then you, you have a whole second wave of resistance. And so my words of encouragement is always, you know, nothing venture, nothing gained. So if you don't expose, if you don't talk, if you don't bring up, then you're at square one and you're doing nothing. But if you're constantly throwing out ideas that are going to help change, you know, especially in the DEI world, you know, why aren't we doing this? Well, why can we do this? Well, we can't do it because X, Y, Z. You know what? X, Y, Z sounds really valid. And I understand. And there has to be a different way. But let's talk about something else now because we can do something with this. And so it's that. It's having a balance of what takes a president and, and, and what takes a backseat. And there are many things that all of us could be doing now um, to, to continue change. And I think to that, I always say, don't be discouraged and don't compare yourself to anyone or any other organization. It is if the change that you're making is making an impact, well, then that's where you continue. But you have to start somewhere. You know, we all can't be New York Phil and I'm not trying to be New York Phil. I'm trying to be the best billing symphony I could be. Yeah. New York Phil has tons of things I can learn from, but this is not New York. <laughs> This is Montana <laughs> and this is Billings. And so I can get great things and great ideas from our fellow orchestras, but then it has to go through a filter and it has to be like, okay, well actually, and what, what what's working in Billings, New York could never do. Yeah. They could never, <laughs> but that's what makes this so amazing is that it is not just one way of doing things. And so I do take from that, but I also say, you have to stay true to where you are at with your people and your community and who lives in your community. Who are you impacting? Who, who, who are you bringing together and um, making that change? We did two years ago, uh, uh, it was called Buffalo Crossing, and we had over 14 tribes represented. 
And they were native tribes. There were the ring dancers. They were the drummers. There were the Native American dancers. They were on our stage in full Native American regalia dancing with a, a symphony orchestra like how cool That's like so cool amazing this was pre my time but we're planning something like that for the 24 25 season I love that. And like and so we have that access to something like that you know and we continue to do that and that has impacted our community um in such a big way and we're building bridges to our reservations and it, it that's tough that's very tough just one day at a time though just one day at a time but I say orchestrate change is one day at a time and um continue it's about consistency being consistent Mario thank you so 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 much we really oh. appreciate it yeah thank, thank you both so, so much. much we need to do this again <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. I love this. And I, I love what you guys are doing. And I wish you both the best um, and much success because this is amazing what you guys are doing out there. So continue the hard work and um, we'll continue listening to your podcasts. <laughs> Mario Lopez, executive director of the Billings Symphony.